0: Welcome to the New Testament Review,
1: where every episode we discuss an influential work of New Testament scholarship.
0: I'm Laura Robinson.
1: I'm Ian Mills.
0: And we hold PhDs in Religious Studies from Duke University.
1: Today we're discussing Bart D. Ehrman's The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, The Effect of Early Christological Controversies on the Text of the New Testament. This was published in its first edition in 1993 by Oxford University Press. Laura, what's this book about?
0: This is a book about textual criticism that argues that scribes who copied the New Testament did so with an eye to making some intentional changes to the text. There are pieces of evidence that some texts have been changed deliberately in response to early Christological disputes in the earliest church about Jesus's identity.
1: So textual criticism is the practice of reconstructing the history of the transmission of a particular text. So, an author composes the Gospel of John sometime, let's say, in the late 1st century. This text is then copied and copied again, and we find little bits and pieces of early copies and later copies. We then notice that between these different copies, there are variations. The copies do not all say the same thing traditional textual criticism is the process of trying to reconstruct what the original was from all of these copies, and textual criticism today has taken a greater and greater interest in reconstructing the history of these texts, the variety of these texts, the variations between these texts, and what gave rise to those variations, as well as the use of individual manuscripts by reading communities, etc., etc.,
0: most textual variants are pretty easy to explain. Most of them are at the level of mistakes, right? There's misspellings, there's what's called haplography when a part of a line is deleted from an eye skip. Most mistakes are pretty easy to explain. But you do have some times in the New Testament where there is a change in wording extension of a sentence. And what Ehrman is looking at in these texts are places where it looks like the introduction of variants might be more significant and the changes might be deliberate.
1: So perhaps the most important book in all of New Testament studies, but certainly the most important book in textual criticism, is Westcott and Hort's Introduction to the New Testament in the original Greek, in which they establish, in general, which manuscripts scholars today still treat as the most reliable, which manuscripts are less reliable, and group together other related manuscripts. Westcott and Hort, in their book, make the following statement. It is our belief that even among the numerous, unquestionably spurious readings of the New Testament, there are no signs of deliberate falsification of the text for dogmatic purposes. In general, textual critics at the time that Ehrman is writing this, in the 90s, treat variation as the result of mistakes, skips, misspellings, errors. Ehrman's intervention here, and he's not the only person to make the same kind of intervention at roughly the same time, but his intervention here is to argue that actually we can see Christological controversies, controversies over the nature of the incarnation, over the identity of Jesus, influencing the text tradition in a specific direction, specifically making the text line up more closely with what would become orthodox theology than the original reading did.
0: He goes one heresy by chapter, basically, starting with anti-adoptionism. Adoptionism is the idea that Jesus was not always the son of God, but that Jesus became the son of God at a point in his life. The moment of adoption where Jesus becomes the son of God in adoptionist readings is usually taken as the baptism, but it can also be taken as the resurrection.
1: And because we have to treat books selectively, that's where we'll spend the majority of our time today. But the other orthodox interests that Ehrman sees motivating textual changes in the manuscript tradition are anti-separationist, anti descetic and anti-patropassianist theological interests. That is, the rejection that Jesus and Christ were separable and indeed separated at his death or resurrection, the idea that Jesus only seemed to be human, and the idea that the Father suffered along with Jesus on the cross. And there's been a lot of development in how we think about heresy and orthodoxy as categories in antiquity, and how we think about these particular groups, which are, I think most people recognize, are heresiological constructions. There was never a church that walked around calling themselves adoptionists or separationists or docetics. This is a polemical category invented by people who don't like that idea to label other people. But I think for Ehrman's thesis, we don't need to think about these heresies as actually existing in any meaningful sense. Some of them certainly did. Certainly there were people who held views about Jesus's humanity wouldn't have measured up to 4th century standards of orthodoxy. But I think Ehrman's thesis still works. Even if we understand orthodoxy as really Developing and being invented from the second, third, fourth century on. That early on what we actually see is everyone sort of just looser in their expressions, using using language without regard for the debates, controversies, categories that would interest later theologians. So I think Ehrman's book here really survives critiques of there never were any separationists in antiquity. Well, yeah, that's true. But there were lots of people who talked about Christ in ways that later Christians wouldn't have found acceptable. And as that quote-unquote acceptable theology is developing, you can then understand Ehrman as arguing that people would then take to their texts of the New Testament and might be inclined to revise these texts or uh, massage these texts to better support the theology that they are now developing, to better accord with their new, more exacting standards of orthodoxy.
0: It doesn't have to be true that there were docetics in the first century for this argument to work. What does have to be true is that there were anti-docetics and that they were copying texts and they were interested in making the text line up with what they believe very strongly.
1: In chapter one, Bart really lays out the Bauer hypothesis. This is an idea first proposed by Walter Bauer, and we have a whole episode on it. Episode 26, you should go listen to basically it's this idea that orthodoxy wasn't an established given thing that always and everywhere dominated and represented majorities of christianity that in fact there was a diversity of early christian theologies and the victory of orthodoxy is something that was achieved through theological controversy through all variety of contests and competition specifically for ehrman's project a contest that involved books which books count and what form of those books are we going to use?
0: Orthodox interpreters and theologians often accuse heretical thinkers and heretical writers of changing scripture to say what they wanted to say for their position to work. So, for example, Dionysius of Alexandria is quoted in Eusebius's history as saying, It is therefore no wonder that some have attempted even to falsify the scriptures of the Lord when they have done the same in writings that are not at all their equal. Orthodox writers are throwing around accusations a lot that heretics are changing the scripture to say what they needed to say for their heresy to work. What actually seems to be the case is that this is something Orthodox writers are doing too, that Orthodox scribes are, in fact, making alterations to the scripture to support Orthodox Christological perspectives.
1: And by mirror reading Orthodox authors defensive themselves, we can get a good sense that their opponents- who we might retrospectively call heretics, were accusing Orthodox Christians of altering the text as well. Both sides are accusing each other of changing the text. It would be remarkable, suggests Ehrman, if then this activity that both sides are accusing each other of left no trace in the manuscript tradition, as Westcott and Hort seemed to believe.
0: So this brings us to chapter two, which is where Ehrman talks about anti-adoptionist corruptions in the text. Again, adoptionism is the idea that Jesus was not always the son of God, but that Jesus became the son of God at some point during his human life. This is often uh, said to be perhaps his baptism or perhaps his resurrection.
1: So Ehrman covers probably about a dozen variants in each chapter of this book. We can't do all of these what we're going to do is we're going to single out some particularly influential arguments of his some that he spends more time on than others and you'll have to go to this book to get the rest
0: so let's start by looking at luke three twenty-two in a variant in readings of this passage Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying,
1: Either, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased.
0: Or, you are my son, today I have begotten you.
1: So Ehrman points out that Justin Martyr, the second century Christian apologist, himself seems to suggest that this verse... In the latter form has been read to support adoptionist perspectives about Jesus. The idea that God begat Jesus at the baptism suggests that maybe Jesus wasn't the son of God before he was baptized
0: so how do we pick which one of these is the older reading so a thing that's important to note when we talk about textual criticism is that textual criticism is not a head count right it doesn't matter if we have 10 manuscripts and seven say one thing and three say another seven doesn't necessarily win because if you copy a mistake seven times it's still a mistake we have to apply some standards to try to get at which reading might be more accurate
1: So Ehrman likes to group the evidence we use to evaluate text variants under three headings. What he calls external probabilities, which is which variant is better attested, and we're going to put an asterisk next to better because that's complicated. Second is transcriptional probabilities, which variant was more likely to be produced by a scribe, and what he calls intrinsic, but I prefer authorial probabilities, which variant is the author more likely to have produced? That is, which accords best with the author's attested vocabulary, theology, etc. So in terms of external probabilities, obviously there's factors to consider like the age of the manuscript, right? If a variant only shows up in 9th century manuscripts, and we have 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century evidence, that's probably not a very good attestation for that variant reading. You also have how widely distributed is the attestation for this manuscript. And this is not just a headcount, this is also, do we have this showing up in the earliest Latin versions and the earliest Syriac versions, cultural worlds that often don't communicate with one another? Being geographically widespread in that way might suggest that this had an extremely early origin. And finally, there is the Hortian dictum, one of these... Italicized sayings in Westcott and Hort's classic work on textual criticism, that, quote, knowledge of documents should precede a final judgment upon readings. And what that means is you need to know something about the character of the manuscript you're discussing. Manuscripts, witnesses, have personalities. There are certain manuscripts which are notoriously paraphrastic, certain manuscripts which are notoriously pleonastic. That is, use lots of extra words, or paraphrase lots of things, or seem to omit things. Witnesses, whether it's the text tradition they're passing on, or the actual scribe who produced that very manuscript, both of which sometimes is relevant, witnesses have character. And so if you can determine, on the basis of readings that you can be confident in, that one manuscript should generally be preferred over another, and this is what Westcott and Hort did for us, then when you come to an unclear case, you come to a difficult case, you can then know which of the two manuscripts is probably more reliable. If it's in general more reliable, you should prefer it in the unclear case over the manuscript which is generally less reliable.
0: The next one is transcriptional po- probabilities. This is the question of, is uh, is one reading able to explain another? Can we see why a scribe would look at one version of a text and then change it to a different one? So a really good example of this is a place in Mark 1, where uh, when Jesus interacts with a, a man with leprosy, and the leper says to him, uh, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus has some feeling and then cleanses him and sends him on his way there's a not well attested reading where jesus is very angry at this he that he was incensed and said i am willing to be clean and then sends the man away but the dominant reading is that jesus is very compact is jesus feels compassionate well like jesus being full of compassion said i am willing so, which one of these readings is more likely to explain the other? It doesn't make a lot of sense that scribes would generally look at Jesus being compassionate in this situation and change it to being angry. The, uh, the, the reading of anger is more difficult and more confusing, but, but it makes a lot more sense that people would not know what to do with an angry Jesus and would change it that way, right?
1: And transcriptional probabilities are most useful when you can distinguish between the reading a scribe is likely to prefer and the reading the author is likely to prefer, Intrinsic and transcriptional probabilities are best when they point in opposite directions. So, for example, to use the Mark 141 example, if you could show, and I think you can, that it's actually quite plausible that the author of the Gospel of Mark would depict Jesus as angry, that throughout the Gospel of Mark, as opposed to other Gospels, or in contrast to other Gospels, more often depicts Jesus as having harsh responses and generally more prone to these sort of emotional outbursts, that this actually fits with Mark's portrayal of Jesus, but that we know later Christians, both their commentators, interpreters, and indeed later gospels like Matthew and Luke, are less comfortable with this portrayal of Jesus. You then get transcriptional and authorial probabilities pointing in opposite directions. And that's really useful. So these last two are best used in conjunction when they point in opposite directions.
0: So that brings us to Luke three twenty-two. Using these standards, what is our best evidence for what the older reading of Luke is? Did God say to Jesus, you are my son, the beloved with whom I'm well pleased, or did he say you are my son, today I have begotten you?
1: So the manuscript evidence falls along some pretty traditional lines. Codex Bezae is this Greek manuscript that is generally quite erratic. It contains lots of singular readings that aren't found anywhere else, and lots of distinctive readings that we have reasons to think are secondary to our other great 4th and 5th century majuscules. And Codex Bezae often aligns in these interesting readings with Old Latin translations of the New Testament, the Old Latin Gospels and Epistles. And that's the case here. Codex Bezae and the Old Latin both give the You are my son, today I have begotten you reading. As opposed to P4, the only 2nd and 3rd century piece of evidence here, a papyrus, and Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, two of our most reliable, most consistent, what used to be called Alexandrian manuscripts. These both give the you are my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased reading. It's worth noting the former, because Codex Bezae also contains a facing Latin translation and often aligns with the Old Latin, was historically called the Western text. This has been somewhat problematized because Western readings also show up very frequently in the Near Eastern Syriac text. But in this case, the Syriac actually supports the Greek schools, the Greek manuscripts, as does indeed the majority of later Byzantine manuscripts. So what you have is a couple frequently erratic Western texts, based in the Old Latin, up against virtually every other manuscript, including the most reliable and the majority of the manuscripts. Now, this is a bad start for the adoptionist reading. But Ehrman wants to point out that this reading is also known by Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, the Didascalia, Origen, Methodius, and a number of other church fathers into the 5th, 6th, and 7th century. And this is unusual. These kinds of Western readings usually don't stick around this long. They're usually not that widely spread. So Ehrman's question with respect to the external probabilities is, how is it that we have this very early, widely attested manuscripts and patristic citations that gets completely and totally obliterated in the subsequent manuscript tradition, such that all other manuscripts disagree with it? His suggestion is that this might be a place where we actually go with the unreliable manuscripts over the more reliable manuscripts, based on patristic citation and the considerations we're going to consider after this.
0: The next thing at issue here is transcriptional probabilities. Transcriptional probabilities is which change is the scribe more likely to make. The thing that's interesting here is that scribes are very prone to harmonization. This is a place where a lot of changes in text come from. It's trying to make scriptural text sound more like each other. The issue with this is that both readings could be plausibly explained with harmonization. So, you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased, would be a good harmonization with the other two synoptic gospels that have this phrase when Jesus is baptized. But the other one, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is from Psalm 2. So it's also scripture, right? And this is a verse that shows up in Christological context in several places in the New Testament. So both are reasonable harmonizations for a scribe to make because they both have similarities to other texts in Christian scriptures.
1: Yeah, harmonization is one of these scribal tendencies things we know scribes like to do but it doesn't help us here at least not initially now Ehrman's argument that the western text the text that sounds more adoptionistic that that's original against the other one is that if harmonization to psalm 2 was a scribal tendency we should also expect to see it in the Markan and Matthean baptism narratives. We should also expect to see Psalm 2-7 showing up occasionally, at least, in some manuscripts of Mark and Matthew at the baptism scene, but we never do. So I'm not really sold on this argument, because there are other places where harmonization is definitely what's going on, but it doesn't affect the synoptic parallel for that exact same passage. Explaining why harmonizations like this affect just one gospel probably has something to do with the early transmission of these Gospels as separate books, and the fact that lots of text variants get introduced early on, um, and what we have is just the reverberations of that early textual variation preserved in lots of later manuscripts. But that's complicating things. Let's stick with Ehrman's argument for a second.
0: So the third element of this is authorial probability. So this raises the question of, does Luke suggest anywhere else in his gospel that Jesus' identity as the Christ emerged throughout his life? Instead of being something that he was immediately born with, was this something that might have emerged? Because if so, this might suggest that there is this adoptionist element in Jesus' baptism because this is an idea Luke does not disavow.
1: And Ehrman, of course, is going to answer yes. He sees, for instance, in Acts 13, exactly this happening. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Here we see in Acts, the author applying exactly this same psalm, Acts 2, to Jesus' resurrection. Speaking of Jesus' resurrection as the day that God begat Jesus.
0: This also shows up in uh, the sermon in Acts 10, 37 through 38. This message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, the reason why this has adoptionist overtones is because of that phrase, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. The word anointed is, of course, the root word of the word Messiah, which is the word for Christ, right? So this is this idea that God appoints Jesus as Christ by anointing him at the baptism with Holy Spirit and power.
1: In each of these passages, we see the author of Luke Acts comfortable describing Jesus' identity being formed, Jesus' special status as not being something that just existed at his miraculous conception in Luke 1 and 2, which the author of Luke certainly also believes, but being willing to speak of later moments, additional moments in the life of Jesus, as Christologically significant. It's worth noting that Ehrman doesn't need to argue, and I don't think he is arguing, that Luke Acts is in fact adoptionistic. All he needs to argue is that it's comfortable with the kind of language that later Christians would associate with adoptionism. And for that reason, later Christians who are opposing what they understand as adoptionism are uncomfortable with the language being used in Luke Acts.
0: Ehrman argues that a scribe at some point came across this phrase that God says to Jesus at his baptism, today I have begotten you, and was worried because this language was hitting his ear as adoptionist and made the deliberate change to... Alter the text to eliminate that possible reading from this passage. Not that Luke was himself an adoptionist and later readers were not, but that the meaning of this language had now become loaded and needed to be changed.
1: Okay, we're going to do these latter chapters relatively quickly. Chapter 3 is about the quote-unquote separationists, Christians who seem to speak of the Christ and Jesus separating. This idea that the divine part of Jesus was separable from the human part. Again, I think this is actually a category that Ehrman himself made up, and there's no reason to think anyone ever identified this way, but we did recover from Nag a number of documents which fit this sort of characterization we see in orthodox polemics. And a verse that I think is really interesting with respect to this theological controversy is Hebrews 2.9. The author says, At present, we do not see everything subject to them, referring to mankind, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone? Or, without God, he might taste death for everyone. The first text, which is almost certainly what your New Testament prints, is attested by basically all our best manuscripts. The second text, which you might find in a footnote, is found in three random minuscules, often Byzantine texts, the Latin Vulgate, the Syriac Peshitta, and notably for Ehrman, it's found in the text of Origin of Alexandria.
0: At first glance, the external evidence seems to be terrible for the variant reading. It's just so poorly attested. But there is that little origin thing, right? It's the uh, it's the it's the thing that makes this something that you have to actually stop and look twice at.
1: I interrupt this fascinating textual criticism content to bring you our first ever kinda sorta ad read. <laughs> that is, we were asked to promote this upcoming conference, "New Insights into the New Testament," a conference being hosted and put together by Bart Ehrman and many scholars who we've worked closely with, have good relationships with, or have admired for many years from a distance.
0: This conference is specifically geared at people who might not be professional Bible scholars and want to get a chance to learn from professional Bible scholars. And if you enjoy this podcast and the kind of books that we talk about, this is probably right up your alley. The conference itself is going to be from September 23rd to 24th. So uh, you can go to the website bartairman.com if you would like to sign up, and there's a link there.
1: And this entire conference, in fact, is online. It's going to be happening during the day on these two days, entirely online.
0: Particular favorites of mine from this list are, of course, Mark Goodacre, my advisor, and Ian's will be speaking there. Uh, Hugo Mendez from UNC, a wonderful John Scholar, will be speaking at it. I really, there's no one on this list I don't love in whose work i don't read constantly but there's so many great people there amy Jill Levine is going to be speaking there if you're interested in issues of uh judaism in the world of the new testament dale allison classic matthew scholar
1: canada moss whose work we've covered on this podcast before jody magnus who is an archaeologist working at unc Chapel hill and, and writes fascinating work on the history of the new testament time period and ancient judaism Jennifer Knust, who's written fascinating things on textual criticism and a whole bevy of other fascinating approaches to the material of New Testament studies.
0: We're probably leaving people off, but if you take a look at the list, you'll find scholars whose work you'll be really excited about. I think this looks like an amazing lineup and I would highly encourage anyone who is interested in the academic study of the New Testament to go. It's going to be accessible, it's going to be interesting, it's going to change your mind about things. I think this is going to be a really cool conference. The more difficult reading here is obviously apart from God, right? That Jesus died apart from God. There's a lot of difficult theological implications from this, right? The idea that God was somehow not with Jesus when he died or had abandoned him. There's a lot of reasons why this reading is more difficult and therefore harder to explain as a transcriptional change. And authorially, there's a lot of interesting detail that the author of Hebrews really likes the word chorus, which is without or apart from. Um, and uses it significantly more than any other author. And by contrast, the author of Hebrews doesn't really use grace language very right. Kerite uh, theu, the phrase uh, by the grace of God, doesn't otherwise appear in Hebrews. So it does seem like by the grace of God is somewhat against the author's usual style, and is harder to explain as a transcriptional mistake.
1: Now there's a feature of this variant that doesn't come through in the English. Hopus kariti theiu, by the grace of God, and koris theiu, sound very different in English, without and by the grace of, but they're very close to each other in Greek. So in this case, it's a real possibility that this is a slip of hearing, or perhaps a memory slip, or, and we'll talk about this later, maybe a scribal proposal, that got copied into the text based on similar sounds.
0: The the evidence, aside from attestation alone, is interesting. And Ehrman argues that the reason why this is changed is a deliberate change to move away from separationist theology. The idea that Christ and Jesus are separate beings and Jesus, the human, the humble element, died this humiliating death apart from God. That's what... Ehrman argues, is the, is the impetus behind this change, to get rid of this possible heresiological reading.
1: And this brings us to chapter four, the anti-docetic motivation for variant readings. So again, docetism is another one of these heresiological categories. It comes from the Greek word to seem, dokeo. You can go back and listen to our Elaine Pagel's episode, where we talk about the kinds of Christians who might say that Jesus only seemed to be human, and in this chapter, Ehrman is going to draw attention to a number of passages that seem to emphasize Jesus' corporeality and Jesus's authentic humanity, that seem to emphasize how viscerally, physically, corporeally human Jesus was. And while we're only going to zoom in on one of these, it's interesting to note that many of these apparent anti variants are what we call Western non-interpolations. They are variants that have more or less the same distribution of witnesses. There's reason to believe that maybe, however these originated, it's at least possible that they all originated from the same place. They all sort of have a shared history because the exact same groups of witnesses line up on both sides.
0: So this is from Luke 22, 43 to 44. This is Jesus is in Gethsemane, and he is obviously in deep distress. This is very pronounced in the Gospel of Mark, for instance. And in Luke, uh, we have this passage where an angel appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he, Jesus, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now... This is an interesting passage because, in general, in Luke, Jesus is much more composed when he is in Gethsemane. In Mark, Jesus is prostrate on the ground, uh, asking for this cup to be taken away from him. In Luke, where Jesus is, in addition to being more composed, often just portrayed as a man of prayer who goes into prayer a lot, Jesus kneels on the ground and prays. And this level of extreme distress is not nearly as pronounced, right? But then you hit this passage where... Jesus is praying and he sees the angel, and now he is sweating drops of blood, like so this is extremely stressed, anxious reaction.
1: So, these two verses, including Jesus' famous sweat of blood, are missing in their entirety from some of our most reliable and certainly our single oldest copy of this part of the Gospel of Luke. P75 is missing it, Sinaiticus is missing it, Vaticanus is missing it, and some of their frequent allies. It's attested, on the other hand, in that notoriously problematic Codex Bezae, but also much of the Old Latin, much of the Old Syriac, and indeed the majority text tradition. So this has allies lining up on interestingly different sides. Missing in our best manuscripts, present in our unreliable early manuscripts, and then showing up in a bunch of versions and later manuscripts.
0: And what we do see is that orthodox resistors of the docetic idea use the specific passage to challenge the docetic idea. This shows up in Justin, Irenaeus, and Hippolytus. This idea that, no, no, Jesus actually was suffering tremendously in all of his humanity. We can see it because of the way he is sweating drops of blood.
1: Yeah, Ehrman uses redaction criticism to show there's a marked tendency in the Gospel of Luke to play down... or in many cases, completely erase Jesus' suffering. Luke is using Mark, and when Jesus cries in in Mark, or falls down on the ground, or weeps, or cries out, those get deleted or turned into places that instead show Jesus' composure and control. Perhaps the most obvious, famous example is Mark's cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Becomes, into your hands, I commit my spirit. This tendency not only pervades the very passage we're talking about, the Garden of Gethsemane, where without these two verses, Jesus is very much in control, but the whole Gospel of Luke presents Jesus as composed, as facing his death like Socrates, right? Facing his death as a person in control of himself and, in fact, of the whole situation. And the insertion of these two verses, Ehrman says, doesn't fit with that portrayal. It shows Jesus losing control. It shows Jesus suffering. It shows Jesus exasperated. Exactly, Ehrman argues, the way Luke would not want to.
0: So where does the Orthodox Corruption of Scripture idea come in? If you are an early Orthodox reader of Luke, and you are aware of these docetic ideas out there, the idea that Jesus only seemed to be human, but he actually sort of transcended humanity in some way, you might read Luke and think, huh, this looks really docetic. And then the pressure for a scribe would be to make Luke look less docetic and put in an instance where Jesus actually is obviously suffering and is obviously out of control in a way that makes him seem much more human and not just this sort of martyrological, divine transcendent figure. So I think all these examples together, I think it makes it very clear what exactly this general argument is. Is what are the changes? Why do they look like changes compared to the other readings we have? And what are the ideological reasons why somebody might change this text?
1: Okay, so this volume has had a huge influence on the field. Lots of people have been inspired by this to do similar projects I'm thinking of the work of Kim Haynes Eitzen, the work of Wayne Kennedy, and so many others who have looked to the text tradition of the New Testament and found therein evidence for ideologically motivated rewriting of the text. It has also suffered a fair amount of criticism from different directions. So we just wanna run through a few general criticisms to make you aware of them. One of the most common critiques is an objection from both directions to Ehrman's use of the term corruption. That this is somehow value-laden. That assumes some model of working unfair to people in antiquity.
0: Ehrman actually does answer this in chapter one. Ehrman is not unfamiliar with the argument that all scribal activity is itself a reading practice and a writing practice. And therefore... Uh, not a corruption of a sacred earlier text, but simply a response to a text, right? Ehrman is aware of this. It's just that what Ehrman is focused on is the act of deliberate change. Even if you think the language of corruption is loaded, the point is not that Orthodox scribes messed up the text of the New Testament. It's that they changed it. They did deliberately change it.
1: Ehrman acknowledges he's being ironic. He's going for a catchy title. He discusses this. And in Ehrman's defense... This term may be loaded, but it's not anachronistic. This is the kind of language people in antiquity used to describe the kinds of activities Bart is discussing. So I'm not troubled by this objection.
0: It's also worth noting that this, these theses have found a wider audience uh, through the popular version of this book, which is Misquoting Jesus, uh, that Ehrman went on to write a popular version of this, where this book faced all new critiques, uh, this, this time more from a uh, biblicist religious community that were angry at the idea that the Bible was not reliably copied throughout history, right? So a lot of times, if you've seen critiques of this idea, sometimes that's where they're coming from.
1: It's notable though that Ehrman's project assumes that scholars can reliably identify which version of the text was older and even original, which is something that often gets lost in polemics against Ehrman, that he's actually being much more conservative here than someone like David Parker or other people who have continued to talk about texts as living traditions. I wanna briefly discuss two more lines of critique One has shown up in several places, I'm thinking of a particular piece by Tommy Wasserman, where he argues that Ehrman's thesis is problematized by the fact that particular manuscripts don't show coherent theological agenda. You can find within a manuscript one interpolation that's supposed to support a particular theological agenda, and then a reading that Ehrman associates with the opposite theological agenda that the witnesses themselves don't seem to be coherently advancing the project that Ehrman is ascribing to them. And Bart's response to this has been that he never claims that the manuscripts that survive are themselves the site for the scribal interventions that he's positing. That is, Codex Beze isn't the manuscript where all these readings first got introduced. Rather, Bart thinks that most intentional variation emerged in the late 1st, and in the second century, and that the witnesses we have are much later manuscripts that show the mixing of different textual traditions, and so inconsistently represent these earlier interventions by scribes. My sense is this isn't really a powerful argument either way. And lastly, I wanna mention the work of Ulrich Schmid, who has, I think, argued pretty powerfully in a series of articles that there's not a lot of good evidence from antiquity to suggest that scribes made intentional changes in the act of copying. That the people who were themselves responsible for copying were in fact reading and rewriting the text actively as copyists. What there is a lot of evidence for is those copyists mistaking readers' notes and other kinds of marginalia for corrections and emendations. And introducing some of that, sometimes by accident, into the text itself. So, for instance, one common piece of marginalia you find in manuscripts is lectionary notes. That is, where to start and stop reading for a church service. And there are places, Schmidt has noted, where these lectionary notes and other similar comments get copied into the New Testament text.
0: I was going to say, Ehrman deals with some of these in his Hebrew section, if you want to look at this in action.
1: And this, according to Schmidt, actually presents a much more plausible account of how meaningful variation, at least in a number of cases, is introduced to the text tradition of the New Testament. That you don't actually need to think of someone intentionally coming to rewrite the text of the Gospels. What you need to imagine instead is a reader who is going to make notes in the margins of his text that are maybe intended as interpretive, maybe intended as conjectural emendations, that are noting parallels to other gospels or other scriptures, that subsequent readers come along and see that a previous reader has noted, for instance, that God's language at the baptism is an echo of psalms and has noted the relevant psalm in the marginal note, not in order to introduce it into the text, but as a relevant parallel that a subsequent reader might want to consider. And then that scribe mistakes that for a textual correction and incorporates it into the New Testament text. So no one needs to have intentionally tried to rewrite God's words at the baptism. Instead, you have someone noting a relevant parallel or noting a possible alternative reading that seems to make better sense to them. And someone else, or even potentially that same person later, although that seems to be less common. Readers and copyists don't usually tend to be the same people. Incorporating that into their text. And this creates problems in some ways, if you want to understand Ehrman's thesis as being an account of the intentionality behind lots and lots of these text variants. But in other ways, it may make better sense of it. Because we can still see how the reader's notes that get incorporated are still advancing a particularly orthodox theological agenda without supposing those very same people are actually purposefully rewriting their text. So I don't think this is a refutation by any means of Ehrman's project, but I think it's an important qualification for how these kinds of things happen. And lastly, I'll say things like the longer ending of Mark, still require you to assume someone is composing a fresh ending for the gospel of Mark. So Schmid's claim is not that this explains everything always all the time, but I think it explains a lot of stuff a lot of the time.
0: Yeah. So this book is, it's important because it's a big step forward in the field um, alongside uh, Eldon Epps' book on the ways in which scripture, New Testament scriptures were changed to be more anti-Judaic, for instance. Uh, We do have this move forward of thinking about changing text as a thing that is sometimes done intentionally towards certain theological ends. If you've never gotten into text criticism before, this is a great book to start with that can also introduce you to some early church controversies and some early theological debates.
1: Agreed. Do you think we should have acknowledged that we used to drink beer in Bart's living room once a month.
0: <laughs> we did do that. that yeah, so this is one of those <laughs> cases where there's a little bit of a bias uh, in our work on the grounds that we know the scholar <laughs> and we like them. UNC and Duke are about 20 minutes apart. So when Ian and I were at Duke, of course, we knew Bart Ehrman. Um, so, yes, we, we do know him. But
1: <laughs> I don't think we've ever claimed to be unbiased in this show. Oh run further to the dark hole. Oh.